0: We had a pitch session where uh, the judge literally said to us, will fashionable women really want a functional handbag? Yeah, he he actually said, do fashionable girls care about being organized? Which is kind of like saying, can a pretty
1: girl actually be smart? From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, we have the story of three friends who came together to create the cult favorite handbag company, Dagny Dover. Melissa Mash, Jesse Dover, and Deepa Gandhi were all on a mission to make a beautiful handbag functional. Their vision was a work bag that professional women everywhere were looking for. Now they're competing with major brands in what some said was an overly saturated market. Here's how these founders found their way. Okay, ladies, welcome to No Limits. It's great to have you here with us. Thanks Thanks for having us. We're so so
2: excited to be here.
1: I'm so excited. I have to give a shout out to my friend, Nina Prasad Murphy, who originally called my attention to Dagny Dover. And I was saying, as all of you walked in, you know, when somebody mentions something to you and then you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the start. And how the three of you come together. So we have with us Melissa Mash, who is the CEO, Jesse Dover, who is the chief creative officer, and Deepa Gandhi, who is the chief operations officer. So let's go back to the beginning. How does Dagny Dover get its start? Sure. So um, I, I used to work at Coach
0: for a long time. And in my last role there, I was in charge of turning around the Coach brand in uh, the first European location. So it was Heathrow Terminal 5, British Airways Exclusive Terminal, and there was this tiny coach store. There was Dior, Prada, Gucci, a bunch of other brands. But every day people would come in and they would talk about their handbag problems, that they were looking for a bag where they could have a laptop and a water bottle and they wouldn't have to worry about ruining a $1,500 computer and so on. (laughs) So, you know, after hearing that story so many times about people's keys scratching their laptop and never being able to find their wallet and stuff like that, um, I saw that there was a huge opportunity for a new brand that was was digitally native, that was well-priced, performance-oriented in terms of being awesome aesthetic, but also a ton of really organized, thoughtful pockets, and then uh, started putting together the founding team the next year.
1: The two of you, Deepa and Melissa, meet at Wharton. In business a- school? Actually, we go back, way back. So <laughs> Even farther. We're on year 11
3: story. in our friendship.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but, version, but who's keeping version. track? But no, you know, you know
3: it's, it's, it's my other marriage. <laughs> and we met actually in 2007 when I had recently graduated from undergrad, You know, moved to New York, was working in finance, and um, made a lot of new friends. And Melissa was one of them. And she was working a coach at the time. And it was 2007 and then 2008 – Markets were crumbling. Financial crisis. I was working at Lehman Brothers on oh the trading floor. And I was like, "I this is not what I want to do with my life. And at that time, Melissa was one of the people I was talking to about working in retail. I was like, I love the industry. This is something I'm really passionate about. But what does a finance girl do in fashion? And Melissa said, I'm going to dinner with a friend who works at Club Monaco would you like to join? I said, sure. Three weeks later, I had a job. My entire career path changed. And since then, we've always been close. The next big juncture in my life was going to Wharton, and she was the year above me. And when I was interviewing, I stayed with her, as you do with your good friends. And all she could talk about the night before my interview was, what are your handbag problems? Like Tearing apart what I was carrying, why I was carrying. And all I wanted to do was prep for my interview the next day, because I was like, let me get into school first, and then let's talk about handbags. Um, ended up getting in, and she was still obsessed with handbags when I got there. And what's really cool about having known each other for a while and having worked in the industry was we balanced each other out when it came to what we could do and bring to the table with Dagny. So I went to the first focus group that she was hosting, and that night I called her and I said, Mel, I'm in. I had another idea that I was going to work on. I was like, let's scrap that. Let's fix it. What was problems. the other idea? Um, it was much, much more operational. So... I had um, done a lot of kind of um, supply chain management when I was at Club Monaco. So that seemed interesting from my very nerdy operational mind. (laughs) But fixing handbag problems and bringing that know-how to the table was much more
2: exciting. And I'm really happy I decided that.
1: Jesse, you're the creative. Yes. How did you get acquainted with these women?
2: So I got a blind email from Mel one day. um, But it kind of... I'm a Colorado girl. I'm from the West. I came to New York to go to Parsons because my dream was to become a designer and start my own brand. Um, I graduated Parsons. Um, actually, my senior year, I won a accessories design award at Coach, and that kind of was my um, I don't know it catapulted me into handbags and accessories. And I was like, wow, this is something I'm good at. I'm really passionate about it, um, and I was really excited at the time about about being able to see a company that to me, I mean, a retail company that I hadn't seen before be super successful and a really great place to work. And I was like, I want to build something like this. Um, fast forward, I got another job because, you know, my dad's in my head like, you got to get a job graduating. <laughs> so um, probably one of the bigger mistakes that I've made. But I guess now I can say really? it's not a mistake <laughs> because it led me to you guys. But I took Wait, so I this other job I, was a mistake? <laughs> I, I believe that it was a mistake. Yeah, it led me away from handbags. And I was designing, um, I was designing footwear at the time, and it was a really, it was a very large company. Uh, essentially what happened was I was, I, w- I was just not able to be creative. You know, the company was very, very financially driven and, um, It was wonderful. I met a lot of people actually that I still um, communicate with and are my mentors today. But the experience was very jarring for a creative. And I wasn't really I didn't feel like I was learning what I wanted to learn because my goals were to start a brand. So um, I get this email from Mel and I'm like, wow, that sounds like an interesting idea. Yeah, let's grab a coffee. So we go to we go to this little coffee shop in the East Village and Melissa starts talking to me about Functional handbags, and she pulls out these samples, and I'm like, oh, so now. Know.
1: <laughs> Oh, can we? Do you have pictures of those? Uh, we somewhere,
2: uh, somewhere
4: on the phone.
1: I, really, the I think I can We. I want to post the picture on Instagram <laughs> okay. when this episode I'll, airs, I'll so people sure. can see where you oh, got yeah. your start. I love yes. that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really quite funny, but it, I mean, it was great. But but we actually also just hit it off, and I was like, you know what? This is an exciting project um at the time project let's (laughs) let's get to know each other we designed two products the tote and the clutch wallet which are both now live on the site and i think it was probably like three months and we were like this is awesome i was having a hard time really splitting my time between work and doing this um and then that's when i decided to leave my job at this time they were both at wharton so i was going down to wharton a lot um to just Talk over Taking things. The and trade. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, the bus. Yeah, the, the bus. bus. I oh, couldn't like afford the train.
1: <laughs> we still can't afford the bus. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, that is what I being mean, a startup is all yeah, about, right? Yeah, yep, totally. So, Melissa, you're putting together your dream team. How did you find Jesse in the first place? So, I had looked. Scrappily, on the on the
0: Parsons website to find people who had accessories design. I honestly was looking for someone who had like 10 years of experience. Um, but in working with other designers, what I found was that they didn't know the programs. Like they didn't know Illustrator well or at all. Um, and they also weren't computing in terms of like me describing what I wanted and then it actually coming out on paper like way better yeah. than, than what I right. expected. Um, so when I first started working with Jessie on a freelance basis, her stuff was just like, I mean... Beyond, you know, anything mm-hmm. that I could have ever described, it was like, yes, you totally get it. We're on the same page, and and this is gonna, this is gonna be awesome. So, um, yeah. So we invited Jesse down, and we were all gonna work on it together at Wharton. And it was actually a group of five of us women. And at the end of the semester, um, we'd been working on an independent study with a a very well known professor at Wharton, Professor Bell. Um, and at the end of the semester, then then it really just made sense for the three of us to hit the ground running and start raising some money and get production going.
1: I want to get to that in one second. You mentioned the programs. What are the programs someone should know if they're going to start apparel accessories type company right now?
0: I mean, it was really just Illustrator that I think that I expected someone to be proficient in and very
2: detail-oriented. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I would say, yeah, Illustrator, Photoshop, any sort of digital program where you can uh, render a product and build a technical package with measurements um, to scale, I think I wasn't working during this time, but people used to sketch things and, like, fax them over. um, And actually, (laughs) That's why I was like, what is this? Yeah, (laughs) people were probably expecting you to kind of, yeah. So, anyways.
1: One of the things I love about this group and getting to see all of you interact here, you all have these strengths that complement each other. and, And that's so important in starting a business. And I often talk to creatives who are, you know, how do I how would I go about starting a business? And it's a lot about having that team Mm -hmm. and being able to focus on your very specific function and play at the top of your game inside of that. You're all shaking your head. Tell me
0: how you thought that. Oh, I never wanted to be a solo founder. Um, that first year of trying to, like, you know, start connecting, you know, getting samples made and, like, m- making contacts at factories and stuff was miserable. I was also in school, so that was, like, a whole other situation of, you know, responsibilities. But if you're one person who has to do everything, again, you're not performing at the top mm-hmm. of your game. You're just always stressed out doing mediocre, if at best, at, like, ten different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that, like... You know, two people could be great, but also I, it was really important that we also have a designer. I know that I'm not super detail-oriented or financially savvy, deep as that person. <laughs> <laughs> like, it
1: doesn't matter that I went to work, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just not <laughs> that Wanna person. I'm just not that person. Want to invest in my business. <laughs> so, like, yeah, right. <laughs>
0: so, I really wanted someone who was super strong with numbers, but also a designer who could be, I mean, who could who people could really understand this was coming from her heart. You know, it's different from from me. So um, for me, it seemed like three if not four, but three would be really the right number.
1: Given your backgrounds in retail, how did you approach the idea of getting it into the hands of consumers? Great question. Um, So
3: I think what was interesting is both of us came from predominantly brick and mortar, right? We came from old school, traditional retail. And when we started Dagny, we wanted to take the good that we knew worked and improve upon what we thought could be improved upon. And, you know, going direct to consumer on e-commerce is really interesting because the barriers to entry to launch a product line on a website and start selling it is are much less right. than having to open up a store, right? So that was, that was actually a new endeavor for all of us. Um, and really... Word of mouth. To be totally honest, when we launched, it was all about let's build the most evangelical customer base. And some of those customers are still our best customers. It's really cool and rewarding to meet people when we host events that say, you know, I bought this bag when you guys were, you know, doing your pre-sale in 2013. And
1: It's like knowing an artist before the like. I was at the Kanye shows in Chicago (laughs) before he was Kanye West, which is true by the way. (laughs) Um,
3: And so yeah, so word of mouth. And so what we actually did was when we first, before we even launched the product line, we were scientific about figuring out what were the pieces of functionality and what were the features that were extremely important to our end user, right? So we had identified, you know, this kind of call it post college. All the way up to probably 45-year-old woman, generally a working professional at that time, was really what we were focusing on. What did she need to have solved? And we did a ton of surveys, a ton of focus groups. We had over a 1,000 women and men that had responded to us and given us feedback in one way or another before we even launched our first product. And then we went. We developed the product. We were in sample rooms in New York Jessie literally would just like be sitting there fighting to get everything made and all the little details. She still fights with the factories and still (laughs) is the person that goes to the, to everywhere to make sure all the details are perfect. So then when we launched our first pre-sale in 2013, we had a thousand customers, right? We had, an end up, that ended up building, right? So we had these people that felt that they had been part of our story. They mm-hmm. helped us get to that product. They were invested. Yep. They were so invested. And they were like, these women listen to us. Like we filled out the survey. We said, I would like a place for my laptop. I would love a place for my water bottle holder. I always lose my keys. I often leave my door unlocked in my New York City apartment because I can't find my keys, which is probably not safe, but I do it anyways. <laughs> and now she's figured out a way for me to lock my doors and find my keys, right? And so these were our first customers and then they just started telling everybody. And along the way, word of mouth has continued to always be our number one acquisition channel. Obviously at this point, we're, we have a very robust advertising mix, but word of mouth is still number one. You know, when we launch a new product, generally we see this amazing surge of repeat customers come through. Our loyal mm-hmm. customers, they're like, you did something new. We have a new product launch soon. We always do. And um and. They they are excited. And then about three to four weeks later, we see another surge of new customers come through. And really what that is, is people grab, getting a new backpack, getting a new tote, taking it to work, going on a trip, and telling their people. And everything we do is built around our community to this day because we wouldn't have gotten here if we didn't have those first thousand survey respondents, and we wouldn't get here if we didn't have our customers. And it's just, it's really cool because they're the most important thing. And I think that's something, having come from traditional retail, we knew, like, servicing your customer and making your customer the center of a lot of your decision making and building a two-way dialogue with them was extremely
1: important. Financing. So you decided not to do the venture capital route. Yep. What was the thinking there? All right. Stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor brought to you by Indeed, used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard.
3: Learn more at indeed.com/hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And start here.
1: So you decided not to do the venture capital route. Yep. What was the thinking there?
3: We're building a brand at the end of the day. We're building a brand that has a really strong creative creative artistic force behind it, right? Our founding team is very well balanced in that sense. And when you do that and you want to build a product-first, customer-first brand – you need to be able to make the right decisions for the product or for the customer versus just hitting growth numbers because you have investors that have their own LPs that are you know, saying, well, we need to see all of the portfolio companies grow three times year over year. And sometimes that's not the right decision. For us, we have a very robust supply chain. Product development is a very long process. Jesse can talk about that. Sometimes a launch can be you know, six months out or it might need to be 18 months out and not being beholden to a set of investors that are purely focused on the financials and are pushing you to hit growth numbers by buying customers. We want to protect really this balance that we have between the creative and the business side and by finding more patient capital that has you know a longer term horizon and perspective and don't have set metrics that they need to hit every quarter every year we've had situations where if we'd had venture capital money we would have probably had to have made the wrong decision for the long term of the brand and I can't guarantee that the business would be where it is today if we'd had that type of financing earlier
1: yeah it's interesting we had um Sophia Amoruso who created Nasty Gal yep. mm-hmm. and We talked a lot about this idea of the venture capital funding pushing her business in a direction that was basically they pushed her to grow too fast. Mm -hmm. So with patient capital, in quotation marks, Melissa, is that friends and family then?
0: A large portion of it was friends and family, but it really is people who have a certain mindset where this is not a three-year game. This could be a ten-year game. This is someone who they're investing in us as entrepreneurs. That whatever happens, we're going to figure it out, and they know not to sweat the small stuff. They know that there will be hiccups and to not freak out over it. So um, it's really people of a certain mindset. Um, some of them are small. You know, investors maybe putting in fifty k. Some people are, are larger, um, but it, you know, it can be a fund. It can be um, a family office. It can be otherwise.
1: So, Jesse, when it comes to the actual design and you're overseeing what's happening in the factories, walk us briefly through the process of that, of, like, how it goes from conception on the page to actually being something someone can buy.
2: Sure, sure. Um, Well, so handbags are very different from apparel. I like to always say that first. Uh, But usually it takes, it's about a 12-month cycle from when we ideate a product to when it goes on sale on the website.
1: What percentage of the ideas that you do actually get made into products?
2: That's a great question. I would say probably around 80 to 90 percent. Wow. We have a
1: really high
2: yeah. development into production yeah. ratio. To to Deepa's and Melissa's point earlier, friendly capital, patient capital, having people that understand that We want to launch the right products. We want to do the proper research. We want to make sure that we test, that we're comfortable with the way that it looks and the way that it functions. We can launch, we can take, not take our time, but we take the time necessary to create every product. So we're not sitting in a room, okay, we have 24 hours to come up with as many products as we can to launch next season. It's more, okay, let's sit back. What do we see people need? What do we need? How can we survey them and talk to them and figure out what, things that they want, and then create a product around what their needs are.
1: Do you have a vision board or something like that that you work with?
2: We have real life. <laughs> <laughs> we have a ton of creative inspiration boards, and we're consistently pulling from, yeah, from real life, from podcasts, from conversations, and we save things. And then when we're ready to create, we pull from those.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so you come up with the idea. Correct, yeah. Then what's the
2: next step? So you come up with the idea, and then it's time to sample. So what we do is we'll put our heads down, we'll sketch with a combination of hand sketches and digital sketches, <laughs> Melissa, and we'll build a tech pack. Essentially, a tech pack is a blueprint for a product. Uh, we build that, we send it to our factory, and we they build our first prototype When we get the prototype back, we basically make comments. We decide, okay, is this what we thought it would be? Is it a little bit different? At that point is usually when we drop something if we we know it's just not going to go where we want it to. And then we'll make our comments, send them back. We go through this cycle anywhere from three to seven times, depending on the product, just to make sure that we get it right. And after that, we will basically place orders on the final prototype that we love, and then it becomes a factory game. So then we go over to the factory and we work with them on sourcing materials basically and, and making the product come to life and making sure that the the production quality is the same as the sample quality. So that's mm-hmm. one of the hardest things I would say yeah. is making sure that the, the product that we approve, that we were really excited about, once we have to make hundreds of them, They all look the same, and they come out with no issues, um, and they they arrive in our customer's doorstep looking perfect and even better than than the sample, usually.
1: As you know, that factory relationship is so important and making sure that that partnership and the reliability and accountability is there. How did you choose the factory? Was that something from your background?
2: We basically pooled all of the factories that we knew um we had a lot of friends and all of us obviously had a lot of experience so we deepa and i got on a plane and we went to asia and we visited Mm -hmm. factories and we essentially landed on the people who we thought were going to be the best partners to us while we grew we've grown out of a couple of factories at this point and we're with another great partner i would say that we wouldn't have as the person who's worked with them the most, we wouldn't have been able to do what we've done without them. They've really been like the invisible part of our team that we talk to every day and every night, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think actually on that note,
3: um, a question we always get about factories is because we work with some of the best factories and we're much smaller than the rest of the brands that they often work with. Now we're growing well, but you know, especially in the beginning. And the question is, how did you convince them to work with you? And, what i always say what we always say is we treated them like investors right we had we went in we pitched what the vision was what our goals were what our backgrounds were showed you know early results from surveys you know for the first factory it was really really all the we've surveyed all these people they all want to purchase we've done a pre-sale they're committing Um, and really just treating them the way you would an investor because for them it is a big deal
1: when you were initially pitching this idea, both to factories to potential investors, I'm sure that and, and even I bet at business school I would wonder, accessories and handbags are an oversaturated market. Yep. You're all shaking your heads, yes. So what was the what were the responses like when you were talking about this? <laughs>
0: Funny, there's a there's story that goes about. with that. There's <laughs> so many. Um, there was a lot of skepticism, I'd say, especially when pitching to maybe older men who are not the target customer. For any woman who was our age or for any woman, period, they totally got it. They're like, yes, why hasn't this existed before? This is exactly what I want. And beyond just the function and, and you know, the classic aesthetic, but it also was a matter of like not wanting to have huge logos all over the product. They wanted something that was really, oh, you know, people, not everyone knew where you got that from. Not everyone knew how much you paid for it. Like it was, it was supposed to be something cool to discover. Um, so that being said... There were plenty of people who were skeptical. Um, in particular, you know, we had a pitch session where uh, the judge literally said to us, well, well, fashionable, what did he say? He said, well, fashionable women really want a functional handbag, which is kind of like saying, can a pretty girl actually be smart, right? It's like, can she live, like, does she care about that?
1: And so how did you respond?
0: Well, people was the one who, who actually. Uh,
1: yeah, he, who he said
3: actually too. said, do fashionable girls care about being organized? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was that was fun. Um, and the response was, <laughs> organization is agnostic of whether or not you care about fashion or not. It's agnostic of what you're doing in your life. You can be a working mom, you can be a stay at home mom, you can be a student, you could be retired. Needing organization is necessary for everybody. It's just that the brands that currently exist aren't acknowledging the importance of that for a variety of reasons. And he didn't believe it. We did not win that pitch competition because of him. Who did win that pitch competition? (laughs) I don't – some company that built the perfect deck that answered all the questions, but I don't think that business is – around at this point yeah, we'll put it nobody, that way
1: nobody won that exactly. competition
3: it was funny because it was actually it was at wharton it was this, state it was this like shark tank thing and um it was like internal and they this the entire room was enraged that we didn't win because the entire room was excited about dagny They're, you know they were like this is necessary because what happened while we were at school was all the women were so excited about it and then all the guys, because they were watching us build this, and we actually used a lot of our – like, like my, my pricing class that I took, we did it on Dagny, right? Like, a supply chain class, we did it on Dagny. It's like so the you Warby have... Parker guys exactly, who, who also, also went thing. to Warren, right? So you build – you use all of these opportunities – to do it. And so everybody was stoked about what we were doing because whether they understood the problem when we first started talking about it, they learned that this was an issue because they'd go home and they'd tell their wives or they'd talk to their sisters or whatnot. And so it was interesting to, and it was very, it was actually an interesting moment because you had this person who asked this question that was inane, but then to see everybody else who would be our customers say, no, you guys should have won that. And you know, go, like, get this bag out there, do this. And so it's it's cool because there's always been this balance between people not understanding. To this day, people still don't sometimes understand it. Um, And it's, you just have to kind of listen to who, listen to who believes in you.
1: First major hiccups and how you overcame them. Oh, my God. Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is it difficult to narrow it down? (laughs) Um... I'm going
3: to go with a lot of the big hiccups came on the production side. So going back to us wanting to take time, needing patient capital that gives us that time to launch a product the right way. When we first launched, we did definitely feel a little bit of that, you know, founder, speed to market, get it out there. And so there was one product that we launched um, right after our original tote that we were a little too quick to put into production. Hadn't maybe done all the necessary testing. Also, This is before we'd hired a team that understood a lot more about the um, intricacies and we ended up having a major product issue and had to destroy a bunch of bags.
1: Literally. That's what you did.
3: Went to our distribution center and we were quality checking all the bags and it kills your soul when you're like, we put all of our blood, sweat, tears, money into this production line. Luckily they got remade and all these things, but it's one of those things and you have to manage the customer, right? Because we'd sent these to customers. And so we... We, t- we went aggressive on how we managed the customer experience. You know, we said we owned up to what happened. We said we're happy to replace it. We're happy to do this. We're happy to refund your money. Whatever is right by you. And I think what's amazing is customers were really happy with how we responded to that because we owned it. We didn't deny it. And we said, we're going to do what's right for you guys and for the product. And it's going to take us six months to bring in the next production run. So we're happy to have you wait. But if you want your money back right now, you can have your money back. And that was year one and a half. Yeah. So it was hard financially, but it was the right decision. And I think after that, we definitely reworked our calendars and said, you know, we always need to make sure we get the right amount of production, uh, right amount of samples, right amount of testing, everything in there. And luckily, we've not had that type of issue going forward.
2: And to Deepa's point, I think the communication with our customers, we really treat them like our friends. And what we've learned is that if we're really honest with them and we tell them what's going on, they're, they're really willing to talk back to us and to give us their honest opinions. Like that situation, for example, was really scary for us as founders because we were a new business. We were still trying to get our name out there. And we were like, oh my gosh, like if this is the first product that somebody gets and it breaks... What what are we going to do? We weren't sleeping at night, but yeah, just learning that we could really have that two way dialogue with them, and and just just be really honest, made it a lot easier to make other decisions uh, moving forward, and to just maintain the trust factor.
1: Melissa Deepa said destroyed the bags. So did you actually destroy the bags that did work? Yeah, because you didn't that, want yeah. them out in the. Oh, they you didn't want they the couldn't. people to ever take them and have your branding on them. Yeah, or yeah. ever ever see them. Basically.
2: <laughs> I think she meant we had to actually go to the distribution center and pull them all off the shelf and cut them, light like them on like fire. Basically, well, <laughs>
0: we make them, them see town.
2: which ones yeah. were defective oh, okay. and which ones weren't. So we had to go through and like mm-hmm. try and rip them apart um, with if, little force. <laughs> yeah, and if they could be, if they could
3: be repaired, we send them back to the factory. They repair them, they reworked yeah. them. But there were some that just. We so had a lot to, of them were
1: repaired. We oh, had to get
3: of. Oh, it was.
1: It was. Um, Were there tears?
3: Um, maybe. <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's I think what's actually um, interesting about it, so it was um, it was like my team that went out to the distribution center and did all this quality checking. One of our first interns who now works for us, and like two of our first employees, and the four of us sometimes still are like, oh. Remember, 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 remember tearing bags, yes. and we're like, look at how far we've come. Like everything's, <laughs> and as the team grows and other things come up, all I think the, that original group were like, guys, It'll we're, never okay. Like, we're okay. Like we're okay, we can handle. Can, anything. We got through yep. that. We can get through this one. And we've had some other hiccups along the way, but I think one thing that is really great is you need a team that's there, right? You need a team that, not just the founding team, but like an overall team that, when something doesn't go well or is surprising, they step back and they say, okay, what are we going to do? Let's solve this together. Um, No, no, like, you know, pointing fingers. It's just like, no, we're in this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, starting a business as a team sport and coming in and saying, like, how can we help? What can we do? We're here. We're not going anywhere, right? And it's us as founders to say that to our team and for them to also say that back to us. And I think... We care about trust with our customers, but trust within the organization mm-hmm. is so important. And we kind of say we're like a family. Yes.
1: Great, great point. I love that. Uh, before we go, am going to go around and ask each of you the worst advice you've received along the way. So, Jesse, what's the worst advice you've received along the way?
2: The girls and I were actually just talking about this before we came in. We we're like, what are we going to say? Mine was actually very easy to remember. I got this advice when I was, I think, in high school. And my dad was an entrepreneur. So he was always giving me unsolicited advice, we'll say. It usually went in one ear and out the other. But he (laughs) said to me one time, never have business partners. And I hadn't actually thought about it until now. But like Deepa said, starting a business is a team sport. We couldn't do it without one another. Also, it wouldn't be enjoyable without one another it's we take all of our wins together and all of our losses together and I always joke about this but Mel and Deepa are, are my wives and <laughs> they're like the longest relationship I've ever had other than like my family and my best friend so it's amazing um and I'm proud of that thank you thank you guys um but yeah I think that actually having partners I always tell people if they ask me for business advice, look for partners, you know. Of course, it has to be the right people. You ha- your your personalities kind of have to mix. You do have to have the right skill sets that complement each other. But really, having a team is the strongest thing that you can have on your side.
1: It's a good one. Melissa.
0: Um. Okay, so how many years in were we when, when the factory, when the factory? Oh, uh, like two, 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 two and a half. Two and a half years in, we had been working with this factory and it was great for a starting factory that was you know doing doing bulk production but they were going through some challenges and they basically said like hey you as our smallest brand that we're working with we really can't afford to to have your business anymore and in fact we need you to pay us 300k up front before we can ship you your last shipment we didn't have 300k sitting in the bank because we were a new startup and um and so i was speaking to an investor he was not our investor but someone who i really respect in the space and I was sort of going to him as like, you know, at, from an advisor standpoint, saying, like, what would you do? Because I know that he had been an entrepreneur in the past as well. And he said, I would just shut down right now. And yeah. I, I was like, what? Like that never, ever even crossed our minds as something that we were not at that point. This was a problem, but we were going to figure this out. You know, so that's when I realized, like, oh, I, I thought I really respected you. I thought we were on the same page. No.
1: Nope. All right. Peace out. <laughs> Whoa. Wait. So did you consider at any point after he said it because you had respected him and gone to him for so long did you consider his advice at all absolutely not Were that you... to me meant that to me meant
0: he did not understand the situation fully and the, the full potential of our brand yeah and that he gave up easily
4: like yeah he,
0: like honestly like it, it was a hard situation Some yeah. people would give up but like that's just not ever something we ever would have considered absolutely wow yeah. That's so crazy! I know do you it's speak crazy to this person. No, anymore?
1: after that I stopped it I was like, "We're not on the same page. I don't want your advice anymore." Yeah. So, what did you do? Did you pay the three hundred thousand? No,
0: but actually, as Deepa was saying, some of the best news can come within you know twenty four hours, and um, after something terrible approached one of our investors and he was actually our, first, we call him our number one rando. Um, he was, uh, <laughs> He's, He's going he yeah. to love this shout out. He's going to love
1: When you say number one rando, is that because he just is a random investor? He who is, who is our first non-friends
0: and family investor who invested in us in our, in our seed <laughs> round. It found so, us on this like, um this, Platform. Seed like, Invest. Oh yeah, Seed Invest this platform for angel investors. Yeah, And uh, Starbucks and we just, in the middle of Midtown. He just really clicked. He was just a nice guy. He was really just what we what we needed. Someone who really understood. Someone
1: with money who wanted yeah. to help. <laughs> I mean,
0: it's not even like he. You know, it's not like he was like doling out like millions or anything. Small check, but the but the idea is the intent, right? And the and the forgiveness, I'd say, or or someone who has the right mentality to be there and stick it out with you. He had never done something like this. We were like, we need a three hundred thousand dollar loan, and he was like, okay. All right, right. Um, and he's like, when would it get paid back? We're like, maybe two years or something. And he's like, okay. And basically he gave it to us. Within a, wow. within a couple of weeks, we had the deal done and we were able to pay the factory and move on. And he's, I mean, he's still one of our biggest champions. We love him, of course, send him lots of product all the time. <laughs> but, you know, it's those types of relationships that make or break a situation of, okay, this is going to be something that, Some investors could freak out out especially as Deepa mentioned, like VC investors could be like, oh, what is this? Like, no, forget it. You're not going to get any of my attention anymore versus being like, "Okay, let's figure this out, move on and have a great year. Such a great story. Deepa.
3: A lot of people say grow fast and we've chosen not necessarily to grow at that same rate to protect the brand. But I'm actually going to give another piece of advice that (laughs) I actually still sometimes get to this day living on the business side, especially being kind of our operational financial figurehead for Dagny. Um, Sometimes I speak to even now advisors and talking through what's, you know, what's a challenge, what's preventing us from maybe growing as quickly as we want or taking this opportunity on. And we have a really healthy balance between our creative side and our business side. And people continuously will often say, well, you just need to tell the creative team what they need to do. Just tell your designers what to create. And every t- and in the beginning, my gut knew that was not right, and that's one of the reasons I think the three of us have built a really strong founding team relationship is because there's always been this really strong respect. And even as recent as yesterday afternoon, mm-hmm. Jesse and I hashed out a situation that was design versus. Sales, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and we, we found the compromise. Like we found the in between. We talked it out. We said, okay, I'm like, I agree with you from a fashion design perspective, but at the same time, that's not going to drive the same volume from a sales perspective. And we hear each other and we respect each other. And to us, that's a lot of our secret sauce. It's the fact that you can work in any part of the company, have any sort of background and have an idea. And you should be able to bring it to the person that's in charge of that and have that idea. And the second you start letting business overpower the creative, it loses a lot of that heart. It loses a lot of that emotion. And I think that's in its advice I'll probably continue to get. And it's one that I very, very strongly now say thanks, but it's that's not helped us to this date. And I don't think it's ever going to help us. And we've, we've gotten here and we and we have made some decisions that we're definitely counter to what was correct from a financial model perspective but that's not correct right what's correct is what's gonna make this product great what's gonna what's gonna get people really excited what's gonna get the brand awareness that much stronger versus just thinking about margin and like dollars
1: i realize how difficult in the moment Those types of decisions and conversations have to be because you love this thing that you have created (laughs) and you never, ever want to put it in jeopardy. And it's this weird catch 22 of, you know, by pursuing the mission statement, do we undermine the entire thing? I do think that at this moment in time, business has really shifted in that the old school way of doing things was you know essentially like cost cut make it as cheaply as you can. Mm -hmm. And that worked for a long time, but that's not really what's working anymore. It's more of these micro communities Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. ideas that pop up and become incredibly popular. And I guess for me, and this is a longer conversation, we can Mm -hmm. do it hopefully another time as another podcast. But what I always wonder is sort of what is the 2.0? Because you see it now in companies like Dagny Dover, where you have this like fervent following of people who love of what you're doing and you're staying true to it but eventually and even now you're having the scale conversation i'm sure yeah yeah
2: we,
0: I, I think just the key is not to be overexposed right like there are tons of brands who i think pursue every opportunity that mm-hmm. comes their way to grow big fast and be everywhere and be a be a household name within you know two three years that's never been our game plan and mm-hmm. that's not what we believe will be long-term success so it really is slow and steady it really is making sure that we are um Yeah. Just not rushing into anything prematurely. Life is long.
2: Yeah. And making sure that we do what we do best. You know, we keep our eye on the prize. We know what we're good at. We know what we believe in. And we don't get distracted by all of the noise that's around us because there is a lot of noise, we'll say.
1: There's so much noise. (laughs) So much. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to all of you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. This is so so fun. This is great. We're so excited to come. This is great. I'm so happy you did come, and it was a really great conversation. And I can tell you three have a lot of fun together. A lot (laughs) of fun, a lot of challenges. (laughs) It's all good. Sister wives,
2: (laughs) founder wives.
1: (laughs) So much noise, but we're so glad you're listening to this. And hopefully, you don't think it's noise. It's useful, right? Well, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Shannon Wilburn. She's a great friend to No Limits. She is also the CEO and co-founder of Just Between Friends Franchise Systems. They are North America's leading children's and maternity consignment event with more than 150 franchises across the country. And Shannon started Just Between Friends from her living room as a way to supplement her income, recycle clothes and toys from her kids that they had outgrown. She says she didn't set out to start a multimillion-dollar franchise, but that the concept resonated with so many families. And by the time she made her consignment event into a franchise in 2003, she was able to quit her day job. Here's Shannon to tell you more about it.
4: Hey you guys, I'm Shannon Wilburn, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of a concept called Just Between Friends. We are a pop-up children's and maternity consignment event, and we started this business back in 1997 in my living room. My co-founder and I wanted to really help families make money and save money on their children's and maternity clothes, toys, and baby equipment. At the time, we had small kids, and it was difficult to buy all of the stuff and pay retail. So we wanted to find a way to help families make and save money, and so that's what we did. And the Lord has blessed this business immensely, and we have been able to grow to over 150 locations nationwide. The goal really is for us to be in all 50 states and become international. And um, we would love for you to check us out. You can visit our website, jbfsale.com. And if you're interested in franchising, you can visit visit jbfsalefranchise.com. Check us out.
1: Congratulations, Shannon. I wish you continued success. And remember, for all of you listening, you can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of Shannon's story. Also, don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations. If you have career questions, send those my way as well at No Limits nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. We really appreciate it when you write. I do read it. I read all of it. Anyone who's written knows they got a response from me. I also want to say thank you, thank you to those who've been leaving us reviews, like GE.88, who writes, Hi, Rebecca and team. Thank you so much for making this inspiration of my day. This speaks to my heart and sends me hope when I'm feeling frustrated about my career. I'm tuning in and repeat listening to them. Well, GE.88 or ge eighty eight. I believe you. I know how frustrating that career can feel at times. And I'm really glad that this is helping you along the way. Believe me everybody feels this way at some point or another as you know everybody who's been on the podcast has felt that way at some point or another so you are not alone and i'm really thankful that you're listening finally a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen week after week producer taylor dunn editor michelle boncardo research assistant annie osakwe and the abc radio team david rind elizabeth russo josh cohan andrew kelb and steve jones